Last time, I think I preached, I mentioned I had, um, I had these new bifocal contacts that I was trying to deal with. I think it was contacts. And now I'm, I'm doing trifocal glasses. <laughs> so again, I'm learning. It takes like two weeks or something to adjust to the fact that you're at different distances and so forth. So, Sin, iniquity, and transgression. Lovely words. <laughs> Not what we like to meditate on or talk about too much or too often. As we continue our engaging with God for growth, our series that we're doing in our home groups and in our sermons. Um, these are realities that beg to be addressed. Sin, iniquity, and transgression. We can't talk about Christian growth and relationship skills without having some understanding of these three things. Aren't they all the same thing? We just generally often use the word sin, but the Bible uses the word sin, transgression, and iniquity, and there are separate words for those in the Hebrew. So what are they to start out with? What is sin? Sin means missing the mark, not hitting the target, the arrow coming up short. The picture actually is of an archer shooting an arrow towards the target, and every time he shoots, the arrow does not make it to the target. It doesn't hit the bullseye, it doesn't even hit the target, it falls short. Does that make you think of a certain verse in Romans? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what it means. Everyone has sinned in the sense that we have not reached our potential. We can't hit the target. In fact, we fall short of the target. In one way, you could say if, if we were a scientific project, if we were some kind of research and development, we would eventually be, be discarded as a possibility because we can't deliver. We actually cannot live up to our potential. We may try and try again, but there's something wrong because we, that design is not hitting the target. Contrast this with transgression. Transgression is willful rebellion. Knowing that something is wrong and choosing to do it anyway. And it's interesting, when we use the word sin today, that's often kind of what we're thinking. Sin is the things you do that you shouldn't do that you do anyway. But actually, biblically speaking, what you're talking about when you describe that is transgression. It's a willful rebellion. It's saying, I know this is the right thing to do, but I'm gonna do this instead. Iniquity means crookedness deformity, and particularly of the heart. The defective character in our hearts out of which sin and transgression come from. It is something we are both born with and it's something that develops over time. The crookedness, the defectiveness of our heart. 
there's inherent in the understanding of iniquity is something that's not entirely our own fault. Something went wrong in the design. Something was crooked, and we're born into it. We inherit it. It's handed down to us. It's also developed, and this is where we, do, we participate with this crookedness, it develops in us from learning how to cope with the things that are lacking in our environment. So iniquity can develop even further. It can take the, the, the flaw, and that flaw begins to get embellished and embellished and become a way of coping with things in a very crooked way. Psalm 58.3 says, we are estranged from the womb. We go astray from birth, speaking lies. So that's telling us there's something that is in us when we're born that's already defective. I like to think of it as it's like our heart has a birth defect. It's a spiritual infection, and it's passed down through human reproduction. This is a mystery. This is part of the mystery of the fall that we hear about. The consequences of Adam and Eve's decision as the mother and father of the human race to disobey. So now it's something that we're stuck with. Not, there's not one human that is not born without this defective heart. Iniquity is primarily what I want to address this morning. Not so much sin, not so much transgression, though they all are connected, and you'll see in the ways in which they are connected as we go on. Um, It's helpful to understand, then, that iniquity is not so much the action of the sin, but it's the deformity inside that keeps us causing not to be able to hit the target. Sometimes... We transgress, we, we transgress, but that's because the defect in our heart causes us to fear that we won't get what we need unless we get it ourselves. So you can see the defect is what leads to things like choosing to do something else. The defect is what leads us to miss the target altogether. We all have it, this propensity to choose wrong, and to fail, and in addition, our development as babies, children, teenagers, continues to develop this propensity. It's the perfect bad storm. Defect plus bad or missing nurture. Our family systems are never perfect. There are things we lack in our upbringing that reinforce this fatal heart flaw and so iniquity lives on. The Bible has a lot to say about the heart. And Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. That's the place of iniquity. Matthew 12, which is the scripture we read today, says, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure, or good heart, brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure heart brings forth evil. 
you're familiar with the verse. We recited it today. Um, the instruction, love the Lord your God with all of your heart. And this is key here. In the Bible, your heart, and I've said this before, I think, in one of, one of my sermons, your heart is not your emotions. That's the way we use it today. I love you with all my heart. With all my heart and soul, I want this. That's the place. We use it as a place of emotions, of great feeling. And so when we interpret that scripture, love the Lord with all your heart, love him with all your emotion. Now that's, that's partly correct. Our, we want our emotions to be there, but biblically the heart is something a little bit more than that. Your heart is the eyes and ears in the spirit. It is the part of you that can either hear and see God or not. It is the center of your sensing apparatus. It's where you perceive God. Iniquity is the brokenness of your senses. You are cut off from being able to see and hear spiritually. Whenever God says you have a hard heart, it's because you are not hearing and not seeing God. The greatest commandment is love God with all your heart, all your ability to see and hear him, not your feelings per se or your will, but with your ability to observe and connect to him. It's a command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your ability to see and hear. Love him with your soul and mind but notice that heart is first. Our psalm today said, in my heart, in other words, in my hearing place, he said, look at that connection, in my heart, it's connected to hearing, he said to me, seek my face. So I said back to him, your face I will seek. This is connection. This is heart seeing to face. Very intimate and personal. So if iniquity is the deformity of our ability to connect, then our apparatus for seeing and hearing him is defected and it doesn't work right. There is a disconnect if we aren't able to see him and hear him, we are left to our own thoughts and ideas and we make choices based out of our disconnection with him. This leads to acts of transgression and willful rebellion because we want what we want when we want it, regardless of the standard. And this leads to missing the mark. We don't hit the target as a person. We don't develop. We don't become the dad we want or that we need to be. We, don't, we fail to reach the kind of motherhood that we aspire to. Our arrow falls short. This is what the Bible calls sin, failure to launch properly. And because we are all tainted with iniquity, we all have these defective hearts. Isaiah says, all of us have gone astray. And that word in the Hebrew is the one for iniquity. All of us have gone astray. Just like what Romans said, we've all fallen short. Now some of this begs the question, why? I hate these phones. 
I'm trying to keep my eye on the time, and you have to open it all the time. It needs my face. Isn't that interesting? It needs my face. <laughs> Why? Why do we have defective hearts? Why is there iniquity? Firstly, I want to make straight here that the original design that God, when he made us in the garden, was not tainted. It was not defective. He did not design us with a faulty apparatus for seeing and hearing him. We were never meant to have this flaw. We were vulnerable, yes, but interesting, in the Bible, vulnerability is not a flaw. It's deeply humane, and in fact, it's a tenderness and openness that we must assume is like God himself because we're created in his image. So the vulnerability, the openness and tenderness is real, that's from him. That was not a flaw. So what happened? Well, in short, there's one word for it, the snake. The, that old serpent, the Bible calls him, the devil, Satan, he got in the garden and we got deceived and we disobeyed. The human race was poisoned. It's like we got a snake bite and our DNA was corrupted, and now everyone is affected. Everyone misses the mark. Everyone is marked by iniquity. Everyone has a heart that fails, that does not stay connected to God, that ends up choosing stray paths. This whole fall, what happened there in the garden, is somewhat of a mystery, and I can't explain it all today, and I don't think I could ever explain it. It's a, one of those mysteries that we don't understand how that vulnerability got taken advantage of, and then how we were all so culpable at the same time, and all that. I can't explain all that. So for today, we're just going to accept it as our way of understanding iniquity. Because that happened now, iniquity passes down from parent to child. We cannot reproduce, this is very interesting, we cannot reproduce without giving our children our iniquity. Our spiritual infection is somehow mysteriously transmitted through reproduction. And not only do we pass it on in some kind of spiritual DNA, but as I've said, we also pass it down through the dysfunction of our parenting, our family systems. Let's see what God says about this. In Exodus 20, when he was describing who he was and what his name was, part of what he said was, for I, the Lord your God, visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Wow. That's something to think about. I, the Lord your God, visit the iniquity of the fathers onto the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. What does that mean, hate me? Those who have hard hearts, hearts that are shut down, not able to see and hear, those who are defective, who have let the iniquity fester. It will pass down to your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Is that the end of what God said there? Those of you who are familiar with that verse. But then he says, but I, the Lord, show mercy to the thousands who love me and keep my commandments. In other words, those who stay connected to me. 
Think of Jesus' words in the New Testament, very similar. What were the commandments that he gave? He would say this all the time, if you love me, keep my commandments. Look, that's exactly what God said thousands of years earlier. Those who love me and keep my words and my commandments. What are his commandments? His commandments are to love him, to love others, to connect to the vine. We heard all about that in our John series. Stay with me, abide with me, stay connected, keep your eyes and ears open, work on getting them open, work on maintaining them open. These are his commands. The point here is that iniquity can be remedied by connection with God. He has mercy on those who connect to him. He has mercy on those who connect to him and stay glued to him. Absolutely together, stuck together, eyes and ears open. Iniquity does not win that way. It does not prevail in those who love God. It is not passed down in the same way as it is in those families where people stay shut. Something changes. Yes, we're born with it, we will always be born with it. Your children, grandchildren, great children will be born with it, great grandchildren. But when there's a connection with God, something is different. Something is different. Something changes in the way that it's passed down. Again, that's a mystery that we can't completely understand, but those of you who have been in the Engaging for God series, and we talked a little bit about the brain science, about what's happening in our brains as we're molded, there are things that happen by the way that you're nurtured that help you be open, and there are ways that change the defectiveness of our heart. Let's look at more scriptures. Lamentations 5, 7, this is very interesting. Our fathers sinned, our fathers sinned, our ancestors sinned, but are no more. They're dead now. But it is we who have borne their iniquities. Can anybody relate to that? So often there's that feeling, well my parents did such and such, and they did this, and they seem to be doing just fine, and I'm suffering because of who they are and the ways that they failed. And it's straight out of scripture. It is we who have borne their iniquities. We have borne the brunt of their hardened hearts. The reaping is done in our lives. We suffer because of the iniquity in our mother's and father's hearts. Jeremiah says, Oh, Lord Jehovah, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and stretched out arm. Nothing is too great for you. You show loving kindness to thousands. Here's the same language again. You show loving kindness to thousands and repay the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their sons after them. There's the same thing. Now, for our example, we're going to actually look at our Old Testament scripture today, the one of Sarah and Abram. Some of you know this um, story. Others of you may not be familiar, so I'll try to um, help you along with it. You've got the instance here of Abram and Sarah, and 
what you remember is that they were brought to the land of Canaan and they were getting older and they weren't having any children and God kept promising Abraham when he would connect with God and listen to him and see him through the spirit there, God would keep telling him, you're gonna have a son and I'm gonna, you're gonna have thousands of children over generations and I'm going to do this. Year after year went by and they never got pregnant. Year after year went by and they never got pregnant. And so at this point, now, Abram's wife is bitter. What does she say there? Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. And she comes up with a plan to use her servant and this was something that they did in those days where you could, you, you could give your servant to your husband, he would take her as a wife, and it was about getting children. She would bear your children, but legally they were yours, they were not hers. So this was Sarah's plan, and you can see that something was already off before this decision to do something that was not given as a command by God. So there's a transgression, but what's behind that transgression? <laughs> iniquity in Sarah's heart. I'm bitter. What is the iniquity? I'm not listening anymore. I'm not seeing. I'm full of fear. I'm anxious. I'm mad at God. He's not doing what he said he would do. It's taking too long. So she gives this plan, and it's very curious. You get this verse. It says, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, in many of the other scriptures in Abraham's life, you have him hearing something from God, and it says he heard what God said, and he went and did it. This is a contrast. He listened to his wife. Her voice. And he did exactly as she suggested. You're starting to get a little bit of a, it's interesting, it's, it's like the fall. Isn't it? It's the story in the garden. So what happens, Hagar conceives, she gets pregnant, and when that happens, surprise, she looks at contempt at Sarah. Says, well, you're not pregnant, but I, I am pregnant with the master's child. Shock. This is a very contemporary story, by the way. It's 4,000 years old, but it happens all the time. Legality problems, jealousies, husband and wife trying to figure out how to make things work abuse, verbal abuse, attempted murder, it all comes in, the, if you read the rest of the story, it's all in there. A confused child, two mothers, one legal and one is my birth mother. So she looks at Sarah with contempt, it really irks Sarah, and what does Sarah do? She goes and blames Abram. She says, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she became pregnant, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. <laughs> Wait a minute. She's the one who brought the plan to Abram. As again, this is like the fall all over again, the blame. Do you see what happens when we give in? Our iniquity gives birth to sin and transgression. Everything goes sour and wrong in relationships. 
And what does Abram says? He says, oh, your servant is in your power. Do to her whatever you please. And Sarah did. She dealt with her harshly, and she fled from her. Hagar did. And we know later, um, twice Hagar sent out into the desert basically to die, and God rescues her. Um, <laughs> this is interesting when I think about the issue of Abram. You know, there, there's certain things here that are just so common to us uh, as human beings that just keep on happening over. This is the iniquity that's passed down generation after generation. You get a woman becoming very bitter, very hurt, and decides, I'm going to take control of the situation, and you have a man that actually becomes very passive. And in this case, you know, we've got so much confusion in our culture right now about the roles of men and women and this and that. Um, and I know this could be controversial, but I, I think what I want to say here is that part of the iniquity that we're dealing with is not just that men are too strong and too powerful and have abused women. Yes, they have. But the main issue biblically is that they've lost touch with their ability to hear and see God. And they can't be who they were created to be. And because they cannot hear and see God, they back off and become passive and just figure they'll let the other half of the human race make the decisions. The women are scrambling. They have men that they cannot figure out. They can't feel like they can't trust them. They can't figure out what the men want. And so the women take things into their own hands and come up with all kinds of plans. And then what do they do? It's your fault. Men, you're the problem. You did this to me when women are just as culpable. And if I had anything to say to the men in this congregation about the story, the main thing I would say is you must cultivate your heart so that you can see and hear God, so that you can know what you want and you can know what you need to do so that you can work with your wife and you can go forward. Because in each one of your families and in your relationships, you have a particular role to play that is yours alone. And that God has actually created you to be in touch with him and to hear how you lead your family. It's part of who you were designed. Yes, you're flawed now. You've got the iniquity issue, but that can be remedied. You need to learn how to see and hear God so that you're never off so that when possibilities come up that are not according to the plan, Abram knew that this was not the promise. He knew. And he went along with it anyway because he was also kind of getting tired and despairing. And he was, out of he was out of connection with his God here. He's not going to him and asking him, is this a good idea or not? He just listens to the voice and goes along with it. It's so important for you as men to get in touch with what you want before God, to know what it is that is the promise to you personally and to your family, and to stay connected to God until that promise is delivered for your wife and your children. That is your role. When we don't follow those roles, uh, 
and that's not the way it went on. And we don't stay connected to God and learn what it is that we are, how we are to be. There's all kinds of consequences, and you can see that in the story. It just, there was, je- like I said, jealousy, hate, contempt, and then Ishmael grows up, and it's no surprise that God says that Ishmael, he, they said, I'm gonna bless Ishmael because I made this promise to, it's Abraham's son, it's not the one that I have chosen, it's gonna come from Sarah, which did later, which was Isaac, but Ishmael is gonna grow and he's gonna have 12 princes of his people as well and he's gonna make huge amounts of ancestors, uh, descendants are gonna come because it's, I have to fulfill that promise to Abraham. But what does he say about Ishmael? He will be a wild donkey of a man his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against his kinsmen. And that has happened. Ishmael is the father of all the nomadic Arabic tribes in the Middle East. I don't need to say much more than that. It has happened. Now, can you imagine what it was like to be Ishmael and grow up in that house? Is there any wonder that that's how he turned out? He had to fight for his survival. He had to fight for his affections. He was confused. It wasn't that God said, I'm gonna do this to you because of whatever. It just happens because the iniquity is already there. Ishmael was nurtured in that environment. So after this very depressing picture of iniquity in our hearts and in the human race and the fathers and mothers of even God's people, what does God say and do? What does God say and do? Well, look at our Hebrews passage, which is a quoting a quotation from the Old Testament about what God is saying he's gonna do in his new covenant. He says, I'm gonna write my laws, where? On their hearts in the place of their seeing, where iniquity, where the snake bite happened, I'm gonna write my laws there, and they shall all know me. That's that connection language, very close. They're gonna know me, and I will be merciful toward their iniquity, their hardness. I will be merciful. I will no longer remember their sin and hardness. This is what we celebrated at Holy Week. Jesus was victor over iniquity and sin. He lived the life that Adam was supposed to live in unbroken communion with God the Father. And then he even did something Adam could never have done. He actually bore the sin, transgression, and iniquity of the world on himself. Isaiah 53 says he was wounded for our transgression, our willful disobedience, and he was crushed for our iniquity. He was crushed for the hardness of our hearts. Something was changed by Jesus' death and resurrection. A new covenant was initiated. We can experience a changed heart. The iniquity can be healed. Our hearts can undergo the kind of surgery that corrects the defect. Our character and motivations can be changed so that the sinful decisions that we make become the exception in our lives rather than the rule. The tables are turned. We are given a new heart, a new ability to see and hear God. Our seeing apparatus is repaired and restored, and it is being restored until the day Jesus returns and our hearts are fully restored into perfect union with his, where we can see and hear clearly, no misperceptions anymore. Clear sight, not through a glass darkly. Praise God. Maturity, 
fully ripe fruit, we will have become what we are always intended to become. We will hit the bullseye. So what do we do now about our iniquity as we wait for Jesus to return and complete our salvation? Our hearts need help. We all have shut down areas, hard hearts, areas where we have little sight or hearing. In fact, I think most of us are pretty well acquainted with the parts of our hearts that, are, that are, are stuck, we can't see and we can't hear. When we're honest with ourselves, we know where those places are. I want to just go give a three practical things that we can do now while we wait for Jesus to complete this full transformation. While we are in this process of being renewed and transformed now, And the first thing I want to say is you need to find a mentor. You need to find someone who will disciple you. It's not enough, even though we've said it from the front here, and that's a good start to get together and have groups and build relationships. You need a step further. You need someone or someones to disciple you. We've learned that in our groups. We've learned it through the brain science um, understanding. You cannot just be taught things that you need to do to reverse the iniquity. It has to be caught. And the only way that it's caught is that you're with other people who have gone through what you have gone through and have already changed. They already have passed through similar things that you have, and now they are responding to life differently, and you watch it and you see it, and you begin to imitate it. You need to find someone that has qualities like you, has been through experiences like yours specifically, and you need to become attached to them. You need to find out what they know. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna read something to you that's from our ACNA, our Anglican magazine, The Apostle, and our our archbishop wrote about this, and in fact, in the provincial assembly that's happening in June, the whole theme is about discipleship. And I thought what he said here was really straightforward and really good, and this is what I want to offer to you. uh, He lists all these names, this is very specific, Bill Murray, Danny Parker, Dan DeHaan, David Chamberlain, David Collins. What do all these men have in common? They discipled me. Bill Murray used to meet, not the Bill Murray that, <laughs> that, that we're familiar with. I think this is a different Bill Murray. Bill Murray used to meet with me once a week to, read, to teach me about how to study the Bible and pray. Danny Parker taught me how to love high school students in a manner in which they would know it. Dan DeHaan taught me how to seek God for himself and not just for what he can give me. David Chamberlain mentored me in the Anglican faith, and David Collins taught me about the church and the release of the Holy Spirit in ministry. These men are just a few of the many who have discipled and mentored me in how to follow Jesus Christ. They gave of their time, their resources, and their very lives to help me become a disciple of Jesus. Jesus calls each of his followers to be about this business of disciple-making, helping others follow Jesus as he leads them in their lives. When a person is born again, she or he is like a new baby in this world. A baby must be cared for, loved, fed, cleaned, disciplined, and nurtured until such a time she or he can walk on her own or his own. The kingdom of God is similar. 
We need to be taught to walk the talk. How do you worship? How do you pray? How do you read and study the Bible? How do you hear the Lord? How do you love your neighbor? What do the scriptures say about Jesus, about serving, about what is right and what is wrong? This is what discipleship does. It cooperates with the Holy Spirit to help us to follow Jesus in our life situation. Many have tried to turn discipleship into a class or a course that we attend. As good as these courses might be, discipleship is also caught, not just taught. It is a lifestyle modeled and shared in the living of life together. I am so grateful for the many individuals who have walked with me over the years, sharing their lives, their families, their wisdom, and their knowledge of God. As Anglicans, we have an incredible wealth of resources to aid us in our discipleship. We have the Catechism, we have the Book of Common Prayer, we have numerous Anglican scholars and Bible teachers spanning the past five centuries whose work opens the pages of scriptures. And we have many godly women and men of the church from the days of old until today. In today's age of technology, we can access sermons and teachings from people all over the world and throughout the history of the church. Our only excuse now for not living into discipleship and being a disciple maker is that we just don't want to. Ouch. That's what he says. This is truer than most of us realize. We don't want to. That's the place of iniquity. That's the hard heart that says, I don't want to learn how to see and hear, and I don't want to do it the way that it needs to be done. I'm going to find my own way of doing it. I'm going to go over here and get very distracted by that thing over there. I'm going to get, I think that's the answer to my life. I think I need a new career. I think what's going to help me is I need to go that way. I think I need to make friends with those kinds of people because when I'm with them, I feel really good. And you know, when I go out and party and drink, that just helps me feel like I don't have to deal with my problems. That's my solution. I'm going to go over here here, and I think what I'm going to do is just retreat. I think I'm going to go hide out in my house and become very depressed, and I'm going to just, you know, I'm just going to pay attention to myself, and I'm really not going to get involved. All of it is a distraction, an excuse, because you don't want to, because you don't want to do the thing that you need to do that's actually going to bring about the change. That's the hard heart. That's the heart that says, I don't want to see, and I don't want to hear. And God says that's the heart that hates him. That's hating God. And he says the iniquity will be passed down from you to your friends and your offspring if you hate me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will have mercy on you and the iniquity will not pass down and you will not be your miserable little self you will change. Your heart will change. You will not keep committing the sins that you've committed over and over. You won't even have the inclination to. You will want to live a life that's alive, that's connected to people, that's connected to things you love. You won't have to worry about changing your career. It will happen by itself because you'll be so in touch with who you are and who God wants you to be. It will be like 
<laughs> it will be like, I've been coloring a lot lately. I just got into this after we went to the art, artist capital of Santa Fe, and I found these gel pens that are really colorful, and they just flow really easy. And when I color with them, I use no pressure. The ink just comes out, and it glides so smooth. Part of the process of coloring with them is that it just feels so good to just let the pen slide, and this beautiful, bright color comes out. It's so therapeutic to me. That's the image coming in my mind. That's what your life will be like. It won't be pressing and trying and trying to figure things out. It will flow naturally out of a heart that's soft and open and can hear and see and knows what color to use at what time. And I think I want to color that one that way. And then you'll be surprised. You look at the design and say, oh my goodness, that's beautiful. I did that. I came up with that design. I was flowing. I was open. That won't happen if you don't have a mentor and you have disciplers in your life. It is the biblical way. It is the kingdom of God. So I encourage you, you have to do it if you want any kind of growth and if you want to love Jesus. And that leads to my second one. You need to love Jesus. You need to talk to him, not just about your problems, but you need to appreciate him and include him in your conversations, your inner conversations. Treat him like the friend that he is. List the 10 things you appreciate about Jesus. I think my husband said that in a sermon. List them out, write them out. See if you can come up with 10 things. If you can't, then you don't know him. Spend time with him. If you don't know how, then find that mentor who you can disciple you as you learn how to develop your own personalized relationship and connection to Jesus. There are lots of tools and methods out there Ask, search, study, practice disciplines that open up the pathways of connections with Jesus. Review and keep working on connection. Obey his command. Remember what we read. What did he say to the psalmist's heart? What did he say there? Seek my face. Seek my face. Get intimate with me. Get to know me. Find out that I love giving mercy to thousands. It's the people who love me that receive my mercy. The people who are hard won't take it in. They're closed. The third thing, learn the Bible. None of these are, you know, if you're looking for some fancy thing to do, these are the things we've always said throughout hundreds of years of church history. Learn the Bible, even if one verse at a time Meditate on it, study it, memorize it, make it a daily part of your life in every and any way you can. You are starving because you do not feed on the scripture. It's not enough just to be familiar with it. You have to eat it every day. You live by it because they are the words of God to you. You have to ingest them. You have to build them into your new heart. They are the ingredients of the new heart. Again, if you don't know how to approach the Bible, ask. Find someone who can teach you ways of engaging with the Bible that are appropriate to your temperament, that work for you. You don't have to become a scholar. All you need to do is to develop a love for those words. Job says, lay up his words in your heart. Heart again, in your heart. In that place of hearing and seeing. Psalmist says, I hide your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
I hide it, I change the place of iniquity with an open heart, and then I don't sin like I used to. Don't give in to your iniquity. Don't settle for a hard and crooked heart. Don't resign to it. Your life will be miserable and you will forfeit your chance to open like a flower in the sunlight. Ask God often to soften your heart. In fact, I would, I would direct you, if I was your mentor, to say, you should pray that prayer every day. You should say, God, soften my heart. He will answer. He loves prayers like that. That's a prayer he will always answer positively. Let God apply his presence to your heart so that the iniquity can be stopped in your family and not passed on to your children. Let God heal your iniquity so that you and your children can be restored, so your hearts can be softened. Full relationship with God and with others, this is hitting the bullseye. This is what it means to be alive. This is what God intended from the beginning that got corrupted and severed, and he has the remedy. The pathway is open and complete. It reaches all the way back to full union with him. Your heart is longing for this. I know it, because it is the ancient primal cry of the human for God in your heart. It knows that it has been cut off. It feels the separation, it hurts, it fears, it scrambles for some kind of connection, even if that connection is fleeting and far below satisfactory. Listen to your heart, listen to the cry of your heart, your need for seeing and hearing God and being connected to him, for more, for clearer sight, for better hearing. I will end with the full quote about our hearts. Your heart is not your emotions. Your heart is your eyes and your ears in the spirit. Whenever God says you have a hard heart, it's because you are not hearing and seeing God. When your heart is clear, you see that God is with you. You hear him and see him. This changes everything. When you see that God is with you and you hear his voice, the world looks very different than it would otherwise. Seeing and hearing God changes everything. Amen.